Good morning. It's great to be back with you here at Christ the King, and my wife also sends her greetings. She is elsewhere this morning, but uh, wanted me to pass that along to you. Let me also say I'm very grateful for the air conditioning system that you put in here a few years ago. I remember summers preaching here when it was 90 plus degrees, and I intentionally made my sermons short. You're not in luck this morning. I invite you to take your Bible, if you would, please, and turn to this towering text in Romans chapter 8, verses 29 and 30. If you're using that Bible in the pew back in front of you, you'll find that on page 944. Romans chapter 8, verses 29 and 30. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Bow with me as we pray. Oh God, as we consider your word this morning, we are a privileged people to have and hold your word, to hear it preached And as has already been prayed, Lord, we would ask that your word would not return a void, but that it would actually accomplish the purpose for which you have sent it to us this very day. Oh God, would you convict us of sin? Would you cause us to rest in Christ and be restless for him? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. One person defined it this way, a symbolic depiction emphasizing relationships between elements of some space, such as objects, regions, or themes. I would describe it a little bit more like a piece of paper with a variety of lines, colors, words, and numbers on it. For those of you who are of a younger generation, you may never have held one of these. It's called a map. And in our GPS day, we have, many of us, never used or no longer use a map. Remember those local maps all folded up in your glove compartment? Or if you were on a long road trip, you would have that bound atlas. Or if you were really on the cutting edge, a triple-A triptych. But the GPS age, and indeed the GPS itself, arguably has rerouted our brains. We have become unthinking commuters, unthinking drivers. We turn on the GPS some of us back and forth from work each day. We no longer have a sense of where we are, 
nor a sense of where we are going. Now, don't misunderstand me. GPS is marvelous technology. I love it. But it has robbed many of us of this sense of place, this sense of understanding where I am on planet Earth and where it is that I want to go. We are now confined to just a mindless right turn after left turn after right turn. No need to know north, south, east, and west. I will not identify which of my children, but I remember one of my children, and I have six for those of you who know, that's why I can get away telling these things, believed that when you were going uphill, you were going north. I believe that child has changed their thinking. We come to a text this morning that actually gives us a map. It is a map that explains where we are and where we're going. It is a map that has been given by God himself. Mind you, this map did not come from one who studied the landscape and then discovered the route. Now, this is a map that comes from the one who created the landscape and determined the route. This is a divine map by the divine cartographer himself. And Romans 8, especially from verses 18 and following, has in view the whole of history. From creation to consummation. Creation, fall, redemption, and consummation. This passage lays before us that grand plan that God is executing on planet earth. Yes, he gives us guidance. It is personal, purposeful, and perfect. You know from God's word that we actually have a personal, purposeful, and perfect plan for history. We see a personal, purposeful, and perfect plan for the people of God, which means there is a personal, purposeful, and perfect plan for you. If you've done any hiking, you know at the trailhead you will find often a chart that will identify you are here. And then it will often show you how the trail makes its way to the destination. If it is a more sophisticated map, it might even tell you the degree of difficulty. Or perhaps where there are treacherous places along the way. This map in Romans chapter 8 gives us bearings for our history, describes for us the difficulty in this age, but lays before us the glorious destination. In fact, it is a destination that is to shape everything about how we think about where we are now. Here is where you are, and here is where you're going. 
I want to read the text again with that in view. Romans 8, 29 and 30. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. First, I I want us to think about the destination in view of its glory. It is a glorious destination. What Paul does for us here in these couple of verses actually lays out for us the the topography of blessings and benefits that are ours. It's not an exhaustive list, but it describes those blessings. As he will tell us elsewhere that God's intentions for his people, his kind and merciful and gracious, yes, indeed, glorious intentions for his people exceed our wildest imagination. And yet God does give us some vision into what it is. God reveals that his goal for history here is us as the people of God to attain unto this glorious destination that he lays out here. Several terms are profiled for us in this text. First, we see the language of foreknowledge. I will not belabor this, but let me make clear to you, this does not mean that God somehow looks down through the halls of history and can be aware of what might happen It is nonsense for us to think that a God who designed history, who breathed out creation by the very word of his power, it is not a God in heaven who is hoping things will work out in a particular way if he gets lucky. This is a God who has ordained the end from the beginning. And his love and his affection for his people is described in this term of foreknowledge. That God knows you. One of my very dearest friends actually grew up in Hawaii. He was born and reared there and he came to faith in Christ actually as a college student at Sanford University. His name is Darren, and he's actually a a man that is the the namesake of one of my children. We named one of our sons after him. Darren, my friend, is perhaps one of the most gifted personal evangelists I've ever known. Well, not only did he grow up in Hawaii, but he also grew up with someone else you might know from Hawaii. A former president, Obama. Darren was on the basketball team with him from... 7th grade through 12th grade. They were friends. But Darren came to faith after he left high school. When he discovered that Obama was actually going to be running for office, he decided he was going to go and hunt him down so that he could share Christ with him. He tried every which way to do so. Couldn't get in to see him. Finally, one of, uh, one of his friends who had some means said, listen, I'm going to buy you a $1,500 ticket to a dinner at which you can sit where Obama is going to be there. 
So that's exactly what he did. Darren walked into this room filled with a few hundred people for this campaign dinner for would-be President Obama. And as he walked in, he saw Obama on the other side of the room, and he wanted to go be with him, but the security stopped him. And he contended, but I know him. (laughs) Yeah, sure you do. So does everyone else here. Well, Darren was not going to let it die. He cupped his hands around his mouth, and he shouted across the room, Hey, Barry! And Obama's head turned, caught eyes with Darren, and made a beeline across the room, embraced him, and they talked. And Darren indeed did briefly get to share the gospel with him. But here's the point. What was more important, that Darren knew Obama or that Obama knew Darren? How much greater is it that God knows us? What a great privilege to be in the intimate eye of God Almighty, the creator of all things. As Paul will argue in Galatians chapter 4, yes, we know him, but even better yet, that he knows us. He knows you. In the beginning of the cartography here, this description of what is going on on planet earth is a description of God's love, his loving affection He has set it upon you. Paul will put it in Ephesians 1 this way. Even as he chose us from before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the Beloved. You can think about it in creation terms. Before God said, let there be light, he said of you, his people, I love you. Not only are we foreknown, we're described, the text here describes it this way, that we are predestined for conformity into the image of the resurrected Son. Do you get that this morning? You are designed for perfection. You're designed to be conformed into the image of Jesus Christ, the sinless one. And part and parcel of the gospel is that Jesus, in accordance with his human nature, matured. He grew in obedience and passed the test of righteousness before the eyes of his father. He is the Adam that attained and claimed the holy purposes of God. And you, in God's grace and kindness, are designed to be conformed into his perfect image. Not only then are you foreknown, but you are predestined to be like Jesus in his resurrected glory. Well, in this text as well, we see in verse 30, those whom he predestined, he also called. This is, in theological terms, what we describe as effectual calling. Those whom God has foreknown and set his affection on from before the foundations of the earth, 
Those whom he has predestined, he will also in space and time, in our lifetimes, call us to himself. He lovingly pursues. And if you know him this morning by grace through faith, it is precisely because God has called and brought you from darkness to light. Paul will say also, those whom he called, he also justified. This glorious doctrine of justification. We as sinners who have violated the law of God in thought, word, and deed, we are legally guilty before him, but because of the righteousness of Christ that is counted towards us, we are guilt-free. And the topography of the benefits of this gift of salvation that is ours in Christ, the beautiful story of redemption is that we in Christ are counted as righteous. But it's not only that we are considered and counted as righteous by the imputed righteousness of Christ, But the text reaches its culmination here. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. We are transformed. We receive the very gift of Christ himself, whereby we're not only declared righteous, but we are purified, we are cleansed, and our ultimate destination involves the full transformation of our bodies. We'll say more about this destination in a bit. But note the glory of the mountain range of these benefits that is described for us in this text. With the destination of our final glorification. Those whom he foreknew, he predestined. Those whom he predestined, he called. Those whom he called are justified. And those who are justified are glorified. This has often been called the golden chain of redemption. It is indeed a a, a chain that is linked together, but it is perhaps even best understood here as a chain that links together in a golden crown that is placed upon our heads because of our union with God. Jesus Christ, the resurrected one, the victor over sin, death, and Satan, the perfect and righteous one who reigns forever and ever at the right hand of God. And all these benefits come to us from the one and only God, the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, this God who has planned carried out and applied his redemptive grace upon his people. That destination of glory is indeed a stunning vista that is laid before the people of God in Rome and then to you and me this morning. But note, not only is this destination glorious, it is also certain. It cannot not happen. For the people of God, it is absolutely certain. This is the God who, as I've mentioned earlier, actually made all things from nothing. When God said, let there be light, there was light. 
This is a God whose word and deed are absolutely inseparable. Moreover, this is a God who finishes what he starts. F.B. Meyer in his commentary on Philippians as he considered that opening section of chapter 1 where Paul reminds the church in Philippi that he who began a good work in you will complete it at the day of Christ Jesus. Meyer points out this illustration of going into a, an artist's studio and finding unfinished paintings. Large canvases with great designs, but they've been left behind, perhaps because he no longer had the zeal to finish them. Perhaps even death itself, Meyer will point out, may be the reason. But the genius was not able to complete the work. And Meyer suggests this, but as we go into God's workmanship... As we go into his studio, we find nothing that bears the mark, and I quote here, of haste or insufficiency of power to finish. God finishes what he has begun. He will surely do it. Did you notice that in this text, all of these descriptors are in the past tense? He foreknew, he predestined, he called, he justified, even glorification is in the past tense. There could be a number of reasons for that, but one of them, to be sure, is the certainty of these things in view of what God has already accomplished in Christ Jesus. That work is finished. It's completed. It is finished, Jesus Christ himself declared. And as the resurrected Son of God who has been raised from the dead and now ascended to the right hand of the Father where he lives ever to intercede for his people, these things are as good as done for you and for me. Note also in our text that The language in verse 29, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he, that is his son, might be the firstborn among many brothers. Do you see this? It's beautiful. The very reason why Jesus did these things was for you. It was in the entire endeavor of his redemptive work was for the people of God. And Jesus has even told us that not a single one will be snatched from his Father's hands. His work is efficacious. But what is even more beautiful about this, we are called here to fix our eyes on this Son, this resurrected and exalted Son. And you know what we find when we look to the Son, when we look to the God who has created all things from nothing, who has established this plan of redemption, who has laid out for us this chart of history, what He's up to on planet Earth? We are called to look to Him. And you know what we discover when we look to Him? That He is looking at us and has been always. The very purpose for which Jesus came was that he might be the firstborn among many. And that is a beautiful discovery as we look to that final rest 
The destination is glorious and it is absolutely certain for the people of God. It is also all-defining. This destination is all-defining. Does your life this morning feel like a meandering? Do you feel like you're wandering? Perhaps you're wondering. God, what is it that you're up to? Where am I, Lord? What are you doing and where am I going? And as we see in the Old Testament frequently, Lord, how long? Perhaps that's your portion this morning as you're sitting here listening to this map of divine redemption. The Apostle Paul is very sensitive to that because he's writing to a church that is itself persecuted and he is saying to you, look at yourself on the map. Where are you on this map? You're at the place, as we see in Romans 8, 18 and following, where this world is, is a corrupt place. It's a place of futility. It is a place of sorrow, of sadness and of suffering. That is where you are but it's not where you're going. And you and I are called this morning to actually look at our now in view of what is to come. That destination is to be all-defining for us. This, Paul says, is where you are going. But God not only gives us this map, He not only gives us the destiny, but He explains the meaningfulness of the pilgrimage. Richard Gaffin in a very well-attested article about the place of the cross of a cruciform life for the Christian notes that the resurrection of Christ is not to be viewed as some isolated event in the past, but is actually the beginning of the great resurrection harvest at the end of of history. Here is what the Apostle Paul is contending. You must view your now in view of what Christ has accomplished for you already. Your entire existence in the wilderness is coupled with the power and presence and promises of God in Christ. And hence, as we look at the topography of these benefits that are ours by virtue of our union with Christ, we find ourselves in a place of riches, even in the wilderness. Of living water, even in the desert. The cosmic map depicts a pathway of suffering to glory. And it informs our day-to-day that God's power is sufficient for your weakness. His presence is sufficient for your fears. His promise is sufficient for your uncertainty. And all of His provisions are adequate for us as we make our way down the path. See, your path is given you by the God who works all things for His glory. This is a God whose 
hand is directly on your life. Your suffering this morning, your sadness, your sorrow is personal, purposeful, and according to the perfect plan of God. Make no mistake. That's where you dwell. However great the suffering, however long the suffering, however deep the sadness, the God of heaven does not fumble with his children. And this map of suffering unto glory, which is the trajectory that is ordained by our loving Heavenly Father. As Paul will tell us in verse 17 of Romans 8, if children then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. The author of Hebrews describes Christ's work this way in a shorthand phrase in chapter 4 and verse 14 where it says that he has passed through the heavens. For you Star Trek junkies, this is a son of God who has gone where no man has gone before. He has entered into the holy place and he is there now interceding for you but has sent His Spirit to guide and provide for us in the wilderness. This Son is the one on whom you feed. This is the Son who leads you through the difficulties, the sorrows. Your life is not an accident. And your circumstances are not either. You see, the destination is glorious. The destination is certain. But it is also all-defining. Because you and I, as the children of the living God, have all that we need in the wilderness. Finally, this destination is our home. Where we are going is home. Paul will tell us that our citizenship indeed is in heaven, isn't it? With our forefathers in the faith, we have our eyes set on the heavenly city. We are looking to the age to come. And Romans 8 here, this very passage that we're looking at is saturated with familial language. Language of family. Language of inheritance. In fact, the text that I just read you in verse 17, we are described as the heirs of God. You know what that means? God gives us Himself. We receive Him. As the children of God, we receive our Heavenly Father and we are heading to that destination where we will dwell with Him in holy joy in the presence of the God of grace. But as heirs, we enjoy royal privilege. Paul will tell us in Ephesians 2 after describing the exaltation of Jesus at the end of chapter 1 that we are seated with him in the heavenly places. Do you realize that the gospel brings you to a place, this destination, this place where you are going, takes you to a place where you are not only in the kingdom and received into the kingdom of God by grace through faith, but you are royalty. You receive the inheritance that Jesus Christ has accomplished and secured for you. And as He reigns, the sons and daughters of God reign with Him. Do you ever think about yourself as royalty? 
That's who you are, people of God. You are royal sons and royal daughters. And as this text describes it, the crown of glory is placed upon your head. This golden chain of redemptive benefits that is ours by virtue of our union with Christ is placed on your head, whereby you not only sit at the king's table, but you sit at the king's table as a child of God. See, gospel privilege brings you home as a royal son and a royal daughter, resting in the excellence of our elder brother, the Lord Jesus Christ, who has conquered sin, death, and Satan. So, royal son and royal daughter, this morning I ask you, as you look on the map of history, yes, you are in a place of suffering, But do you know this morning that that suffering has purpose and your destiny and glory should define the way in which you see yourself and see your God? He is all-sufficient. His promises are secure. His presence is absolute. And He will not let you go. You as a royal son and royal daughter, you're foreknown. You cannot be lost. You are predestined for conformity to the image of the Son of God, the resurrected one. You will not remain as you are. You will be changed. You are called. Therefore, you cannot be forgotten. You are justified. Therefore, you are no longer guilty. You are glorified. You cannot remain as you are or where you are. So fellow pilgrim, as you read the map of divine purpose and divine intention, I invite you this morning as a royal son and royal daughter to press on. Press on. Trust the Lord in whom you rest, whose word and will cannot fail. Delight in your destiny. Rest in God's promises. Rely on Him now. Yes, this morning, you are here. But one day soon, you will be home. The glorious destination, the certain destination, the all-defining destination, at home, with the family of God, Because of the all-sufficient work of Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God in power, who will lose none of his own. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your word, for your promises in the gospel. We thank you that all of your promises are yes in Jesus Christ. We thank you for the map that you have given us for how we are to see ourselves in view of where you are taking us. Thank you, O God, for your kindness and even revealing that hope to us. So as you have first loved us, we, O God, love you. And declare to you as we close our service this morning, my Jesus, I love you. I know you are mine. We pray these things in his name. Amen.